Good morning, Matthew. Nice to see you again. Uh, so Thomas Abraham James here, uh, CEO and president of Pulsar Helium Inc., a uh, company registered in Canada. And as the name suggests, uh, we are a dedicated helium exploration and development company. And uh, we have uh, assets in uh, North America, in Minnesota, the USA, and uh, also a secondary project in Greenland, both of which are primary helium assets. And we're doing our best to get them towards uh, production as quickly as possible. Well, hello, uh, I can see you again. Um, right, helium. Um, not too many people know too much about it. It's slightly esoteric uh, in most people's eyes. Um, tell us what it is used for, please. Yeah, sure. Look, helium is uh, it's used in more or less everything. So it's the, the unsung hero, you could say. Uh, everybody hears about helium party balloons. That's the first thing I like to get out the way. Uh, that's roughly about 2% of market share. So there's there's not too much uh, uh, value in that one. But also it's an industry, I think, that it's a bit of a, a frivolous waste of what is an incredibly uh, valuable and critical product. Uh, so to, to give you an idea of its key uses, it's mostly uh, in the tech industry, uh, particularly in the manufacturing of uh, tech items. So something that we've all got, uh, telephones, uh, televisions, uh, even our vehicles, anything that's got a, a computer chip in it. So... Uh, helium is used in the manufacturing of semiconductors. Uh, that's one of the, the, the key uses and something that we're hearing more and more about is particularly when nations after COVID are looking to secure their supply chains uh, for uh, manufacturing at home, uh, USA, Europe, semiconductors. To do so, they need uh, helium. Uh, another big use is uh, MRI scanners. So, you know, starting to get to that age now where I probably have to go and get one of those for myself. But uh, to get the magnet to superconduct, uh, it needs to be bathed in uh, liquid helium. And uh, so uh, a lot of it goes there. Uh, manufacturing of fiber optic cables, uh, new uh, computer hard drives to make the disks spin faster, uh, require less energy, uh, leak detection, you name it. So really, it's, uh, it's uh, and a big one also is a space. So uh, when you see, say, a, a NASA spaceship there on the launch pad about to take off, You've got the gas coming out the side of it. There's a good chance that uh, that's liquid helium starting to boil at negative uh, 268 degrees Celsius. So it's used in uh, the space industry as well. So really, um, tech and uh, a lot of applications that we're all familiar with. Right. And it's colorless, odorless, hard to find, and um, you need to know what you're doing. So tell us about the team. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost uh, it's almost like uh, looking for, for nothing, I guess. It's uh, <laughs> colorless, odorless, and so on. Uh, but the key thing is it's inert, uh, which is uh, if you look at the other lightest uh, elements, so hydrogen, definitely not inert, whereas uh, helium is. So it makes it safe, non-toxic, non-hazardous. Uh, but with the expiration for it, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to belittle myself here, but it is relatively straightforward. <laughs> Uh, so the helium is produced very differently to hydrocarbons. So on a lot of occasions, the two are, are mixed, but they come from di very different sources. So obviously hydrocarbons from organic material, uh, but for the, for the helium, it comes from uh, actually radiogenic decay. So for the exploration, you look for some of the oldest rocks on the planet. Um, so our project in the USA and also in Greenland have those. And within those old rocks, they're, they're well endowed with uranium and thorium. When they decay, when they reach their half-life, um, then they start to create uh, an alpha particle. Uh, that alpha particle is helium. So then all of a sudden, the, uh, the uranium and thorium component of these old rocks is gone, but what's been replaced with is uh, a lot of helium. 
And then what you need to then do is to break that rock open, create a trap and seal, and then the helium starts to accumulate in that, which is why it ends up uh, in many cases in the same place as a hydrocarbon reservoir. But what we do is we look for reservoirs where they don't have that hydrocarbon potential, where the primary economic driver is the helium. Right. And, and so and just coming back to the question around the team, because obviously it's pre-IPO, you've raised a little bit of money, you've mm-hmm. had to kind of put, put people together. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who has joined you? Yeah, sure. So with the team, we've raised uh, just over 3 million Canadian to date privately. Um, and the team is, it's uh, uh, it's a team that uh, I know very well. So we've uh, we've done this before. We've been in the helium industry now for almost uh, a decade. So we, uh, we the founders behind the company uh, Helium One, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, so uh, I was the co-founder uh, along with uh, our technical manager, Josh Blewett. So he's with Pulsar. Uh, as I say, I'm the CEO. And then the chairman of Pulsar is Neil Herbert. Uh, so he was also involved in that previous company as well. Uh, he's also been involved in many other things. So um, most recently, lithium in the past with uh, uranium. I uh, had a great deal of success there. Uh, and then we have Stu Crow, uh, who's also involved in the, the lithium space. But what he really brings to the table is the access to the North American capital markets. Uh, so uh, with his company, Lake Resources, been uh, successful there. So uh, we also then have uh, John Ferrier, uh, another director of the company. company. Uh, he's the former CEO of Gulf Keystone. So that's uh, an oil producer in Iraq, also listed on the London Stock Exchange. He brings that oil and gas background with him. And then with our team, uh, you know, underneath the board, the management team, we've got uh, gas professionals uh, and uh, and then local content in both uh, the USA and in, in Greenland. So we have a very well-established, capable team with a track record. And probably most importantly, uh, we do understand helium because of that decades experience. Right, okay. And then obviously with the, kind of the Helium One um, experience, um, you know, whatever that is, a sixty million pound company, I think, somewhere, mm-hmm. somewhere in that, you know, that that kind of region, is what were the kind of lessons from there that you can apply here, um, mm-hmm. if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. No, look, Helium uh, One Hand is is still a company that uh, we've got uh, you know a great deal of time for, and I wish them every success in Tanzania, and I think that it will come. Uh, that, but uh, the lessons learned. Well, we were the first ever helium exploration company to exist. So we really wrote the playbook. Uh, so we, we learned everything is the short answer. Uh, so uh, we were, as you said earlier, an esoteric commodity. So firstly, we had to get up to speed with it uh, after making that discovery in Tanzania. What's it useful? What's the market? Who do we need to talk to? The end users, the distribution network. So we know that extremely well. We've met with every walk of life in the value chain of helium. So we have all those connections. Uh, the other thing is is then to uh, to really uh, to to explain what it is, why people should care about it. Uh, but then I think that uh, what uh, what I like about Pulsar in particular, and we'll get into the projects in more detail soon. But uh, location, location, location. So for us being you know, a, a flagship project, uh, project uh, Topaz, uh, it's in Minnesota, it's in the USA, which is the world's largest helium market. That logistically. Uh, helps incredibly. There's no doubt about it. So in terms of availability of equipment, but then also getting it to market, which is key with helium. Uh, it, helium likes to leak. It likes to be buoyant and disappear out the atmosphere. So the closer you are to your market, 
uh, great advantages that you have. Okay, and talk to me about the size of the market. Obviously, you, you've got two projects, one in the US, uh, Minnesota, and also over in Greenland. Um, you've got to get focus because obviously allocation of capital is important, efficiency of that allocation of capital even more important. So is the US the core focus for you? Yeah, look, it is the core focus. And it's a question that we get. Is uh, our, our project there, it's, it's, uh, it's being drilled. It's flowed 10.5% helium. And it's under. It appears to be under high pressure, so um, likely overpressured. So we we have a fantastic asset there, and uh, really that one is the key. Uh, the question is, uh, why do we also have that second asset in Greenland? Uh, we realise it's a remote location, but the thing is, is that finding primary helium assets, these things are very rare. Uh, they're in Tanzania. Uh, you've got some in, uh, in North North America. Uh, really, outside of that. There's, there's not many places where you can find these. So with that project in Greenland, that's something that we generated in-house and we proved that it's a pri primary helium system. So of course it makes sense to then have it. So we want to uh, you know, use our expertise to, to have all these assets. But certainly considering that uh, uh, Minnesota, the Topaz project is more advanced, it's high grade, we're, we're ready to go with that one. Uh, it makes sense for that being our focus, which it is completely. Right, okay. And um, so give me a sense of the size of the U.S. market, if, if you can, or if you know that. Yeah, the U.S. market, uh, so it's roughly about 40% uh, of the, the world's total demand over there. So uh, that's 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 it. You've got to then uh, Asia, Europe. Uh, but with the USA supply, uh, it used to be the world's uh, highest uh, so big, largest supplier uh, of helium. Uh, it's now been in decline for some time, and that will uh, continue. And that's purely because of the age of its assets. Uh, so uh, it was extracting helium as a byproduct of natural gas. Those fields are now getting depleted. Uh, so now it starts to have to look abroad for the first time. So uh, importing from either Canada or the Middle East. Uh, so that uh, U.S. market uh, is is prime for uh, additional supply domestically. Right. Okay. And, and I know you're trying to you're keen to kind of get across your kind of green credentials in terms of uh, you know with respect to hydrocarbon um, component to this or lack of hydrocarbon component to this. Um, but you, you mentioned also the um, uh, pri private rights, so the the, the the land, because a lot a lot of companies that come on here um, talk about the need to deal with, you know, whether it be First Nations or, um, you know, local, sort of social license locally, et cetera. What does private mineral rights do for you as a business? And what does it allow you to do, um, you know, and in, in terms of kind of protecting any kind of future issues or roadblocks that may come up? Yeah, sure. So, well, yeah, with our project in Minnesota, so where, where the discovery was, where it was drilled, and it's, it's, it's worth mentioning that discovery was actually by chance by a, a former explorer that was there. They were looking for nickel. They, they didn't find it, but what they did do is unexpectedly hit a gas uh, pocket, and uh, they very diligently tested it and found that it was uh, this primary helium system, so quite a bit of serendipity there. But uh, what uh, with the private mineral rights, which we then negotiate the lease for, uh, so what that does is means that in the USA, typically it's either private mineral rights, federal rights, or state rights. Uh, so with us being private, uh, really, we go through more or less the same process. In terms of permitting, uh, which, which we're at an advanced stage uh, for, uh, for our drill program that we've got planned for later this year, uh, we just still need to communicate with the federal, with the state, and the local county. So um, so really, we're, we're treating it uh, as though we are on you know, any other tract of land going through the process. 
Um, so it's been very robust. We've been very open uh, in terms of First Nations. Uh, we've already been engaging with them as well. Um, so, uh, so look, you know, really, we've it's so, it's so new as well. Minnesota doesn't have a history of gas uh, or oil at all. If you were to look at the playbook of uh, you know oil or gas exploration in Minnesota, I think it's summed up in one sentence, which is "Don't go there." Um, so really, as the first mover. Uh, there is a lot of education, which we're more than happy to do. The reception has been excellent. Uh, but also in northern Minnesota, where we are, it's a very well-established mining jurisdiction. So you've got the largest iron ore mines of North America right on our doorstep, so less than 10 miles away. Uh, so we have that. The, the nearest major um, uh, town uh, or city is uh, Duluth, which is a log logistical hub for mining. So really, they're very familiar with it. But at the same time, you know, we're up in northern Minnesota. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty. Uh, you've got the lakes there. So we're being incredibly uh, careful and make sure that we don't, uh, you know, that we are the group that people want to have there of choice. So do it better than everyone else. Okay. And, and talk to me about this. It's very high, very uh, high percentage. Like you talk about 10 and a half, 10 and a half percent. Really? Um, this was drilled, but I say, and found by accident back in 2011. So, and then obviously, um, and I think it flowed for four days or something. So, you know, without losing too much pressure. So it's, it's all kind of indicative of um, hopefully what you want to find. But you've got now going to get on with your own process now. So, what, what does that look like? You've raised sort of just shy of three million bucks. Um, what do you do with it? Uh, so what we do, I mean, I mean with, the, with that discovery that was done uh, in 2000, well, it was made in 2011, so with some of the people that were involved there, they're now with Pulsar, so they're part of our team. And it's, it's fascinating sitting down and, uh, with them and recounting that experience. What was it like when they unexpectedly hit this gas pocket? And so the words that keep on being repeated to me, the descriptive words that they use are, um, it was terrifying and it was violent, <laughs> which uh, at the time would be obviously terrifying and violent for them. But from a uh, from a uh, from a an output point of view of a gas, that's exactly what you want to hear. I mean, ma magnificent. I mean, what a flow rate that must have been. So it, it blew the core barrel out of the drill string. Uh, it was open for four days with no obvious loss in pressure. Uh, they then got a, a wind gauge, one that we might say have at our, our homes type thing to try and capture the velocity of it. Uh, it that instrument was capable of uh, recording up to 150 kilometers an hour, which it achieved and then got destroyed by the, the gas coming out. So it's obviously in excess of that. Um, but what they did is they, they took the gas samples to find out, is it combustible? That was their largest concern. And so they took them to, one was to a university in Toronto. The other one was to a, a laboratory, commercial lab. And they both came back and they agreed with this 10.5% and that the gas was not combustible, that the, the hydrocarbons were there in very much trace quantities. They then sealed off the, the well. Uh, they pumped it filled with concrete. And then that was it done. But what we found is that's, you know, that obviously uh, was magnificently, was music to our ears. But then this is a, a new environment. There is no other recollection of any gas in this particular part of, of the USA. So that prompted us to then look at it regionally. What's to play? Um, and what we found is, is, is like anything in life, when you start digging deeper, then you start to find these things. And what we found that actually there were quite a few drill holes could be for mineral exploration, it could be for water bores in Minnesota, where they had encountered gas and it was non-combustible. Now, the, the lion's share of those were not analyzed uh, at all, but one drill hole, only one, was analyzed for helium 
and that came back with 2% helium. And that's located 160 kilometers to the southwest uh, of, of our project area. So what that's really prompted us to do is say, look, we're not looking at an isolated occurrence here. We're not looking at a one-hit wonder. This is, this is very much a, a, you know, a, a prov provincial play here. We really think this is a new jurisdiction for helium. And it has all the right, you know, and I won't bore you with the geological ingredients, but they're all there. It's just that nobody had looked for it. Right, but but, but here's the thing. You, you know, the drill bit tells all. So you can go and drill holes, mm -hmm. and that, that's, ex, that's expensive, mm -hmm. but it'll tell you very quickly whether, whether it's still there or what you've got, mm -hmm. indeed. Um, or you can go and do, you know, as, as most explorers do, you know, geophysics and try and, you know, work, work out roughly what you've got underneath. So how do you go about it? Because this is this is the... IPO is imminent. We'll talk mm -hmm. about that in a second. Sure. Um, you've got to go through the phases to show people that you're kind of in, in, in control of a process and that it is yielding results and in a way that they can understand what it is that you're going to sort of end up with. Because like all, like all commodities, you've got to show grade and, and scale to this thing. So how do you lay that out? For us, it's all about this year. It's all about news flow. Uh, so to... Uh... To walk the walk, effectively. Uh, so, what we've got uh, coming up. So, so uh, going back to the beginning of your question, geophysics drilling for us, it's both. It's a combination. So, what we've already done with our project in Minnesota is we've done a, an airborne geophysical survey. So that was uh, accomplished late last year. That's given us a great uh, insight into the project. Uh, what uh, we've also done is uh, going back to my earlier comments about this two percent helium, one hundred and sixty kilometers away. We're the first mover in this area. So what we've done is we've put in a, a huge number of applications to expand our footprint to effectively monopolize our position there. But what's really nice is that a lot of drilling has already been done uh, in this broader area. So um, one method that's used uh, quite extensively, particularly in North America for helium exploration, is drilling shallow holes, drilling water bore holes, so they can then sample the aquifer and uh, you know, gauge if there's anything coming up from depth. For us in our area of interest, there are over 6,000 water bores that have already been drilled. So one thing that we're doing, and we've already got uh, organized, uh, and that is going to start next quarter, is to go off and analyze all of those water bores, uh, take a, a, a portable uh, instrument with us that will give us real-time helium analysis. Uh, so we have that in our favor. Uh, the next one that's uh, prior to drilling, so we're looking at drilling in the third quarter of this year. Uh, but prior to that as well, we're also conducting a seismic survey. The seismic survey we're using is called, um, it's a passive seismic survey. So rather than setting off charges or using the thumper trucks, we use this passive serve, uh, seismic survey where you leave uh, nodes in the field in a grid array. And then because we're so close to the iron ore mines, there's consistent blasting there all the time. That provides us with the shock waves that we need to the shallow depth where the helium discovery was which is about 550 meters depth. So we get that data. So then when we do drill later this year, at which we've already started rig inspections, uh, groundworks have already started, then we have absolutely every data set we can have. Plus we've got a discovery probably within 50 meters of where we're drilling uh, to de-risk it as best as humanly possible. Okay. Okay. So, and um, if, if I look out for the rest of this year what's we talk about lots of news flow what do you what do you think that needs to look like for people to actually understand how you're getting on because again not too many people know much about helium 
right? It's in terms of some of the other commodity choices that they've got in terms of where they place their money into, into these equities. You know, what, what, do, what would good look like to you? What would success look like to you um, by the end of this year? Success to me would look like, so obviously with this drill hole, this appraisal well that we're drilling. So to confirm uh, the, the, the helium concentration and, uh, you know, you'd be a bit upset if all of a sudden it changed overnight. But uh, there's that, uh, the flow rates, you know, confirming what are they. And then once we finish the drill hole, we'll then be moving off the rig and then we'll be putting in all the testing equipment, pressure tests and so on, finding out what's the size of that reservoir. But really, we're, we're quite fortunate. With that concentration of 10.5%, that means that your overall reservoir uh, it doesn't have to be as large as, say, some of the other companies. We've got smaller, uh, you know, lower concentrations of helium there. So really, uh, we're blessed by that. Was it great is king, right? So uh, we have that working in our favor. But what, for me, is that uh, the, the, the best success we could have is to really replicate that hole, but with the additional data that uh, they were not able to, uh, to, to gather in 2011 because they didn't have the right rig there. Uh, to then go off and then give that to our resource uh, analysts. So we use Sprawl, um, give it to them, get a very nice uh, update to our resource that will then hopefully be sufficient to then say, okay, we're now moving from this appraisal. We're now looking at uh, you know what is the likely production scenario based on successful drilling. Uh, that to me is really the milestone that I want to achieve this year. We're doing everything to de-risk it to get to that point. But one thing that you won't hear from me until that we've uh, completed the drilling is what is a production scenario going to look like? I mean, we're not going to, to put the card before the horse. We're going to wait for that absolute data. And then when it's in hand, then we'll then be able to tell the market exactly what it is that we're looking at and what the company can achieve. Right. Okay. And um, for people to get involved, they're going to need to be able to buy your stock. So um, IPO scheduled for Q2, mm -hmm. you're running out of time. <laughs> we are running out of time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're looking at uh, doing a straight IPO onto the uh, uh, TSX Venture Exchange, the TSXV. Uh, so we, we, we like uh, Canada. reason is is that we're in North America, so it makes sense. There's also quite a few uh, other helium companies there which provide great comparisons. So there's that. Uh, but, uh, look, it, it is imminent. Uh, so uh, what I would suggest is uh, anyone who is, uh, uh, you know, wanting to get involved with the IPO, Due to Canadian securities laws, can't talk about it now, but please uh, get in contact. So the easiest way to get in contact is, well, either via, via Crux Investor, of course, or what we could do is uh, our website, pulsarhelium.com, uh, email address, which is connect at pulsarhelium.com. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, basically Google uh, Pulsar Helium and, and you'll find us. Tom, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate.